0: It seemed like a good idea at the time. Three days in ultimate seclusion. The flakes that started to fall on your way were hardly worth notice. But now the polar vortex is locked over Canada and as the drifts creep up to the windows you feel foolish being miles and miles from any neighbor or route plowed by a road commission. The generator ran out of gas yesterday but there's plenty of lamp oil and wood for the stove. Surprisingly your call for help was met with something like joy. An acquaintance has a snowmobile with enough gas for a one-way trip. They're bringing people, food, supplies, beverages, and, if they heard your plea as the last milliamp slipped from your phone, games. That's right, soon you'll be Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon. Gamers Stuck in Snowmageddon is a discussion with Northwest Michigan residents about life, the pursuit of happiness, and the four tabletop games they'd like to get stuck with in a fictitious snow apocalypse. I'm your host Jim Muratsky, and today we're joined by David Next Time Noller. David, welcome to Snowmageddon.
1: Hey, thanks for welcoming me. This is a, a great opportunity. I'm really looking forward to this.
0: Well, it's great to have you here, that's for sure. And uh, the the first question I always ask folks is, how difficult was it for you to choose the four games that you've chosen to bring along to Snowmageddon? And what criteria did you use?
1: Sure. Um, It really wasn't hard at all. Uh, When I saw Stuck in Snowmageddon, I I immediately thought, what could I do on my own as kind of a solo game? What could I do with a a group of people that would be a challenge that maybe would would benefit replay? And um, some other things like a game that's going to last a long time that can be played over multiple sessions, not just in replay, but as a continuing ongoing game.
0: That's great. That sounds good. So, uh, would this scenario apply to you, would you ever find yourself seeking solitude and, uh, and being out in the middle of nowhere in a snowstorm?
1: Absolutely. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is to be by myself, not in an antisocial way, but just as a way to, uh, have some time to myself. And, and for that, I, I enjoy, um, solo gaming opportunities. And, um, you know, if I'm with a few people, that's great. I tend to be somebody who avoids crowds naturally unless I can be alone in it. So I'll often go somewhere where there are a lot of people, but I'll read a book and stay to myself.
0: Okay. So let's jump right straight in here. Uh, your first game is a giant card game designed to play like a role-playing game. It was designed by Mike Selinker and published by Peso publishing and uh, this is Pathfinder adventure card game. Why do you hope this comes to snowmageddon?
1: This is such a great game. I I played a campaign with a group of friends down at Mount Pleasant, um, Dan and Becca Bogan. And um, we played this game for a number of years over the visits that I would make to Mount Pleasant. Um, I think our campaign lasted three years. Um, we developed characters, leveled them up. They got new powers. And it is like playing a role-playing game, but there is no need for a DM. So everybody gets to play. And as you develop your character, you get new skills, new equipment. Um, the um, mobs that you're defeating or trying to get harder and harder. Um, and there's a real sense of accomplishment when you finish a an adventure pack, uh, when you, uh, part of the adventure, a chapter. And, um, th- there's, there's a lot of built in excitement when you, when you do succeed and if you fail, you try again. Um, it has that great replayability in the, in the face of a failure, um, where you don't feel like there was no way to win, you know, there's a way to win. And so you, you go back and you try again. But in addition to being that card game, there's a lot of dice rolling. Um, and so, uh, it has multiple ways to, um, to advance your powers and to succeed. And it's very much a team game. It's cooperative in the sense that, uh, everybody has to work together to make this work. And, um, and it's been, it's been such a great game for coming together as friends and doing something together with a real goal and a real sense of achievement when you win.
0: So could you uh, talk a little bit more about the mechanisms in the game like how does it work do you have to seed the decks and things like that to make it uh, make the story happen or or how does that how do you set it up and and then you know what me- mechanisms do you use to, in the game to develop that story and that you could play for so long
1: So in the beginning the the game tells you where you are what location you're in um, and then uh, you set up a number of locations and within each of those location decks will be the challenges, whether it's uh, monsters or barriers. And also in each deck is either the main boss or his henchman. Um, also in those decks, then you add things like equipment, spells, um, allies, um, things that can benefit you. So as you approach each location, um, you'll explore the location, which means you turn up the, the card that's on the top of that deck. And then you interact with it if it's a monster you have to try to either defeat it or get away from it Uh, i tend to play characters that are sneaky and that are ranged um it's just always been the the kind of class i play uh so rangers and rogues and that kind of thing um and then as you go through the deck you collect the boons that benefit you and um and try to defeat that particular location and once that location is closed and there are certain closing conditions that have to be met, um, then if you didn't find the main guy, you know, you're still on the hunt because that's how you defeat that adventure is by defeating the boss. Um, uh, and, uh, so as you, if you approach a, uh, a monster, you have to roll dice and you use the, um, the number of dice according to your weapon. And then according to your bonuses, I have sneak attack on my character that I that we used for that, that big adventure. Um, and so I'll get to add an additional like one D six or one D four. And, and then you get modifiers as you level up through the adventure. Um, a lot of those effects will increase or be applicable to different kinds of creatures or, um, there'll be an additional effect that happens before you roll. So by going through all, of those locations. And that's dependent on the number of players that are, they are playing the game. It might be as few as I think five and as many as seven. Um, once you get to the end of that adventure, then all those things you collected, you can either add to your deck if you have space, um, and you can trade things out or you can hand them to your player partners. And you can do that within the, the adventure too, if you're in the same location. So if you collect a sword or a unicorn, <laughs> you can hand that off to a, uh, a fellow player, and um, so uh, you help each other not only during the adventure but also afterwards. If you have something that they need for their abilities, you can just hand it right off
0: to them. How long does it take a to play a typical adventure?
1: Between an hour and two, I would say, probably closer to the two-hour mark, um, depending on how many players you have engaged. I've played with five, and that took a long time, and. I played with teenagers too, <laughs> and so they tend to be a little bit distracted, and they tend to be a little bit. Uh, the group I played with, at least, uh, they were they were interested in all of the things that were that were coming up, and then they would check their phones, and then they would do this and that, and that's fine, uh, but it did take a little bit longer, probably because of that uh, that play group. I would say it's sort of like sitting through a movie. It's about the same amount of time as it takes to watch a movie.
0: And, and the reason to play this instead of a, the role playing game version is just to not have a DM and have everybody involved or is there other efficiencies that make it better?
1: Not having a DM is one of the benefits of this because everybody gets to play. The other thing is that um, because the adventure is laid out on the cards um, and it comes up and everybody finds out what's happening at the same time and you don't have to create your own story at that level. Um, it, it's it is more efficient it's faster i suppose there's less storytelling involved and i do enjoy a good storytelling rpg um those are my 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 favorite rpg experiences have been where the dm has allowed us to tell the story my least favorite are where somebody says i rolled 16 does that hit okay i used my sword did i how much damage do i do i like to tell that story and say you know i take out my scimitar and i i swing at his head and then i roll the dice or something you know some sort of more uh engaging storytelling and and not just mechanical uh you know actions and responses
0: so the the designer of this game mike Selinker, is someone i've been interested in followed because he's an interesting person but um i'm just wondering if you've read any of his other kind of non-game writing like he wrote a book called game theory in the age of chaos
1: i haven't um I have been guided through this game by my my players downstate. We call ourselves the Pathfinder Society, actually, in our little text group because we love this game so much. But they've been sort of my um, my gurus in this. Uh, I, one of the reasons that I'm called Next Time Knoller is that I always do better in a game the second time through because I'm not great at at games the first time. I need somebody to kind of show me the way through, and then I'll get it. And they've been my, my, yeah, they're my Sherpa group. And I rely on, on Kyle, Kyle Delgado from the local gaming group. He's been my Sherpa for a long time as well.
0: All right. So let's talk about some beginnings. What, what drew you to games and where were you when that happened? Sure.
1: When I was a little kid, we played, you know, the standard Monopoly, Connect Four, all that stuff, Stratego. It was a family thing back in the day. Uh, I didn't spend a lot of time gaming with my friends unless it was at the old uh, Cherryland Arcade, which doesn't exist anymore, but we'd go and play video games there. Um, and then the rest of life happened uh, and I became a teacher and uh, I worked in the schools and I, I've taught mythology as one of my favorite classes for a number of years and I'm back teaching it again this year and I'm very excited. And so I've always had a connection with science fiction, fantasy. Um, those are some of my favorite books to read too. And, at one point, um, I met up again with Kyle Delgado, who is a former student of mine. I don't know exactly how it happened, but somehow I got invited to a Sunday board gaming session at earth and ales here locally. And, uh, I found that it was so much more than what I had known and so fun and so welcoming and such a great group of people that I kept wanting to go back. And I did. And, um, I really got inspired by how fun it was and how engaging and how much strategic and critical thinking is involved in doing this. And it, it was, it just became a really fun way to exercise thinking, to exercise my brain, um, which is important as you get older, as we know. Um, so it was fun and I love fun and I I love new experiences. I'm always trying to do new things and board gaming was a thing I hadn't done. So let's try that.
0: So you said you're not a native Traverse City resident, but how did you wind up in Traverse City?
1: Okay, not native, but I moved here when I was a year and a half old.
0: (laughs) That's pretty native, I would say, absolutely.
1: (laughs) Yeah, not born here, but definitely raised here. Um, My parents moved in uh, 1970, and I went to Old Mission School out on the peninsula, and then uh, went through the junior high, high school. Went away to college at Hope College uh, and then Got my degree from there and then went to western to get my teaching credentials and uh it was a natural place to come back to Uh, my wife is also a teacher in town Uh, her family is lives out on the old
0: mission peninsula as well
1: i i've always loved it here Uh, i've always come back no matter where else i've gone in the world i've always ended up ended up back here
0: so my dad was a uh, a high school spanish teacher and uh so i know a little bit about the teacher scene but what What got you on that path to become a teacher?
1: Oh, that's a funny story, kind of, to me. Um, I majored in English literature prior to the 18th century, (laughs) mostly, and philosophy at Hope College. And philosophy was my primary major. That's what I loved. Um, I originally thought I was going to be an engineer, and then um, I took a class on modern literature, or modern philosophy, rather, at Hope College, and fell in love with it. I thought that I was going to be a philosophy professor that I would go get my PhD um I was interested in existential philosophy especially Heideggerian and um Plato was one of my I'm still a fanboy of Plato I thought I'd go get my PhD and be teaching at a college but what I do is only really taught at a few universities in the country and so it would have meant being very far away well after graduating from Hope College I went out with a friend was turning 21 and I was his driver for the night and it's not as crazy as you might expect it to be. Uh, he would go order a Manhattan because that was an adult drink and, uh, and I would, uh, wait for him. (laughs) And, uh, we ended up at, um, a place called Jose Babushka's, uh, which used to be in Traverse city. And there was a group of, of girls dancing that were all friends of ours from high school. And one of them happened to be a girl that I knew, but didn't know well. And, and that ended up becoming my wife, Rachel Noller, Rachel Lardy when she was in school. And, um, I sort of got tricked into dating her and Chuck told her, Chuck Fox was my friend that was, was with us. He told her I wanted to go out with her. I hadn't said that at all ever, not once. Uh, and so he, he told her this and she came over and said, Hey, give me a call sometime. And so now I felt obligated. So I did and we went out on a date and the rest is history. Now I tell that story to tell the rest of the other story, which is that I had to decide between staying close enough to have a relationship with this woman that I met and was fascinated by, or leaving the area, leaving that opportunity and going somewhere to pursue my PhD in philosophy. We know how that turned out. (laughs) And as it turned out, um, my work in philosophy and my work in world religions and, um, English literature and all that was a very easy connect to teaching. Um, and I think I'm a better teacher because of my experience in philosophy and world religions. And, um, I, you know, it's funny, I, I majored in philosophy, English literature, um, psychology and education. And I had minors in history, world religions, sociology, and then I ended up getting a master's degree in the humanities. So it all ties together with what I'm what I'm doing as a teacher. But that's sort of how I got there. It's kind of a long, weird story. But yeah, it started because of a girl.
0: Well, that's great, and I'm I'm glad that that girl uh, got you to, to stick around because uh, I think as a as a high school teacher, you have an impact on so many more people's lives. I know my dad did, uh, and my teachers in high school did. And I, so it's great that you're doing that. That's awesome.
1: One of the great, uh, one of the great experiences of being a teacher is after they're gone and you see them again, 10 years later. And they say something like, you know, you really had an impact on how I think about movies or how I think about storytelling uh, because that's one of the big focuses with mythology. And I've had kids tell me that I've ruined movies for them because they constantly are thinking about the hero's adventure and all the steps and themes involved in that. So, I I love it when that, when I hear that kind of thing, that's the real payoff.
0: Yep. They get their Joseph Campbell on and that's right. Um, so you're pretty well traveled. You said you've studied in Europe and Mexico, you've mountain biked out West and, uh, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Was that just something that, uh, was a standard thing for you to do or were you going to those places to, to get involved in activities or learn something or how'd that go?
1: I was, I was very fortunate growing up. My, my parents were not uh, wealthy by any means, very middle class, but they always wanted us to have opportunities. And so one summer I was at blue lake music camp and I got an invitation to play the next summer in the group that traveled in Europe. And, uh, they were going to help out with some scholarships and my parents were able to make the rest of that happen for me. And so I got to go to Germany and Denmark and tour as a musician for six weeks in the summer. I was 14 years old, everyone else in the band was between 16 and 20. So I was the little kid, you know, um, on the biggest horn, I play baritone saxophone, um, and then when I was in college, um, I had an opportunity to study, uh, in Vienna for two months and it was part of my college education and it worked out and it, I studied, um, the history of opera with a former director of the Vienna boys choir. Right
0: there in the Capitol.
1: Right in the Capitol. My, my school was across the street from the, um, central opera house, the, th- the building that's the center of the city. Do you sing? I do n- well, not in public. <laughs> that's why I play saxophone. Um, and then, uh, Mexico, I had a great opportunity. Uh, Kate Hansen is a Spanish teacher at West high school and she leads a group to Mexico every year, uh, of about 30 students. And during that trip, we, um, we volunteered a dog shelter and at a girls' orphanage, and we provide donations to both. And we also take Spanish language lessons at um, La Escuela Mexicana, uh, right there in Guanajuato, Mexico. And I'd been asking, please let me chaperone with you on this trip, and no, 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 no. Well, I already have somebody, that kind of thing. And then finally, one year, somebody had to pull out. And I said, I'd, I'd love to go, I'm ready, I have a passport. And I got to go. And this year will be our fourth trip. And I love that city. I love the people there. They're so kind, they're so generous. Um, It feels like a Michigan community in that sense of being, it's very Midwestern in its feel of openness and everyone's family and everyone's welcome. Um, And it's a university town. They have a university orchestra that we get to see every time we go down. Tickets to the orchestra are $5. We saw Mahler's third symphony last year, which included a full adult choir and a children's choir and a full orchestra whose lead violist actually is um, educated at the Moscow conservatory and who was on tour one year and then defected and said, I'm just going to stay here. <laughs> and, uh, and I understand why she did, because I want to stay
0: there too. Okay. That sounds like fun. Um, your second game is a radical departure from your first in that it is an abstract perfect information game for two players, but it's not chess. It was designed by Shimpei Sato and published in the U.S. by Arcane Wonders in 2014, and it's called Onitama. Why is this coming along? So whereas Pathfinder
1: is something that you can play for years and multiple sessions and play it over again, and there's additional, uh, there's a ton of expansions for it. Onitama is a two-player chess-like game where you have pawns and a king, so to speak. Uh, your king is a monk trying to get to the other monk's uh, sanctuary, temple. The cards will tell you how you can move your pieces. And there are always five cards per game. But these cards get um, rotated between the players. So you don't get to keep the moves for yourself. Once you use it, you put it out for the into the middle. And then once the other player takes they their turn, they put their card out and take the one that you just used.
0: So basically every every time you have a turn, you have to, your pieces move differently yes. than, uh, than they did before.
1: Yes, and there's, I can't remember if it's 20 cards or 16 cards, but you only use five in any given game. And so the moves that are available to you from game to game to game are always different. There There's a, uh, it's something like a billion different Combinations. So every time you play the game, it's going to be different. And even though the game plays the same in terms of you know, it's just a chess thing, you either take their king or you get your king or your monk to their temple. Those are the two winning conditions.
0: The game is played on just a five by five square grid. Right? Yes.
1: So even though there's not anything different to do, there's always a different way to do it. And there's no way to like, to game the game. There's no way to figure out, well, if I can just do this and this, then I'll win. Um, it's different every time. And that's why I love it. Uh, as a as a small, quick game, I'm I'm never bored of it because it's always different. There's always something else, some other challenge of movement that makes you rethink how your pieces go around the board.
0: While you're playing, what it what are you what's going through your head? What are you like watching the cards that you're your opponent is playing and what's coming up or tell me a little bit about how that goes.
1: Sure. Absolutely. That that's one of the fun parts of that game for me, because you don't just take a turn and then just ignore what's happening. You have to, the, the cards that you play and your, and your opponent plays are always face up. So you always know what possible moves they have before you take your move. So I know that if I play the frog card, which allows you to um, move in the four diagonal directions, um, I know that if I play that card, I'm going to put myself on that spot. But if I see a card on the other side that it's going to allow that player to take my piece, then I can't do that. And I have to figure out something else to do. So you are constantly thinking not only about your turn, but about the upcoming turn of the other player. And if you see where that you think they're going to go, you then have to revise where you might go on your second turn to either provide a benefit or prevent a loss on their second turn. So it's actually a game where I'm not great at planning out things in some other games, but this is one where I can think two, three, four steps ahead not only for myself but for my opponent and see if I can put myself in a position where on my third turn, I'll be in a position where I, if I have the right card I'll be in striking distance. It's really a, a very thoughtful, very strategic small game. And that's that's what I love about it. And and it doesn't matter if you're playing with somebody who's played it a bunch of times or they're brand new because of this rotating of the cards through and everybody gets to use the same five and that's always changing. Um, it really doesn't benefit the expert player that much. If you've played it before you have, you understand it a little better. Sure.
0: Okay. So you always also work at horizon books once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've found that the staff in bookstores are amazingly informed about what's available there. Mm-hmm. So how do you keep up with that?
1: There's a couple ways since I started working at horizon books, it's has revitalized my own reading career. Um, as a teacher, you'd think, Oh, you must read all the time. You teach English, right? You read all these, but so much of that is limited by, um, what's required. Most of my reading is actually student work right? So I I finally gave myself permission a few years ago when I started working at Horizon to read for myself again. Um, And last year, uh, I read something like 32 books, which um, if I go back five years, that's 32 more than I read five years ago, probably. Maybe 31 more, maybe 30 more. But it just, uh, with raising kids and with working in education and working on master's degree and recertification and all that, it just felt like there wasn't a lot of time that I was giving myself. And so I decided I was going to commit to it. And this year, I think I've read eight books since January. Um, (laughs) And it's so, yeah. And so that's one way is I've been just trying to read more. I also joined a, um, a book club Um, with a bunch of uh, my friends who happen to also be local brewers in the area, which is great. Um, And so that got me to expand some of my reading because I was reading what they wanted to read. So I read um, some nonfiction pieces. We read some sci-fi. We read some traditional lit. Gabriel Garcia Marquez, uh, 100 Years of Solitude was one of our most recent ones. And then I have a, a friend at Horizon Books named Ben, Ben Williams, who is one of the smartest, most well-read people that I know. And he's like 26, 30, I don't know. Um, And he has a lot to say and he has guided me to even publishing companies like New Directions. And I've been reading New Direction books hand over fist as, you know, I just discovered that they are, they're a book uh, distributor or publishing company that always has good things to read. I have yet to pull up a New Directions book and think, eh, that wasn't worth my time. So, um, and then the other way I learn about what's coming up is, uh, just by listening to the other people in the store and hearing from customers and, you know, when people come in and say, I want to read something like, I just read this, I want to read something similar. If I don't have the information on that, I know who to ask in the store. Um, generally when people come in for recommendations on sci-fi and fantasy, if I'm there, they'll, they'll refer them to me Um, because I can talk a lot about that because I've been reading sci-fi and fantasy since I was you know nine years old ten years old and then when when we have our staff picks uh of of what our people in the store are recommending for the month I often look at that table and see if there's something I I haven't read and I'm interested in and I'll I'll take one of those
0: so 30 plus books a year that must be why you're the guy sitting in the corner at the bar reading, but uh, how do you find the time? Do you have to consciously like set aside time and say, or schedule time to read or how's that go for you?
1: Yeah. Uh, I do give myself that time, it, whether it's, uh, I, w- when I work, I'll work until about nine o'clock at night. And then um, I'll sometimes go to a local watering hole and um, just set up, sit down for an hour, have a beer, read a book, And then it's 10 o'clock and then I headed for home. And yeah, that hour, a couple times a week there does a lot. And then I I found that I have spent less time in front of the computer and more time with a book. I don't watch a lot of TV anymore and I haven't missed it. Um, You know, there, there's certain series that I'll, I'll get interested in and you'll do that thing where you, what's the word? Binging. Where you binge them. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll do that. And then I'll realize, you know, I've been sitting here for like two and a half hours and I'll go get a book. Um, and so I think not only have I given myself time as a way of giving myself permission to have that time, but I've also found that reading's more fun than a lot of the things that are that are otherwise available. And I forgot that I forgot how fun it was to read. Um, and I reminded myself by doing it. And now that's what I want to do. If you uh, come out to my car, you'll see that the back seat and the back trunk area are basically a library. <laughs> As I finish a book, I throw it in the back. Whatever I'm reading goes on my, on my passenger seat. Um, and sometimes I'll hand them out to people that I'll meet or just wait to find space in the house somewhere.
0: <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that you play a uh, baritone saxophone. Yeah. How did you get started with that? And when I was
1: in fourth grade, we went to see count Basie at Interlochen. My dad took us, my dad is a trumpet player from back in the day. He was the, um, top trumpet player in Indiana two years in a row his junior and senior year. And was actually invited to play with the Woody Herman big band, but he was still in high school and his mom wouldn't let him go on tour. Um, when we saw count Basie on the way home, my dad said, what instrument do you want to play to the three boys? And my oldest brother said piano and he, d- he did. He played piano for many years. My middle brother, Kent said trumpet. And I said trumpet and Kent said, I'm playing trumpet, pick something else. (laughs) And I think I wanted to be like Kent. I wanted to be like my brothers. I was always the youngest. Well, I still am, I suppose. And, um, so I said saxophone and that started it. And in fourth grade, I was at Trinity Lutheran school and for them to have a band program at all, they had to include fourth and fifth and sixth graders because there were so few people in the school to start with. So I started playing saxophone at nine years old. When I was maybe in fifth or sixth grade, we met Hugh Willie, who was a local musical legend, um, who had a youth jazz band and by youth, I mean kids. I was in fourth or fifth grade playing saxophone and he taught me my earliest lessons in jazz and even improvisation. Um, I was in maybe seventh grade and was playing with him in public, not I wasn't great, obviously. I didn't get paid, this wasn't a gig, but he would play piano on the deck at local restaurants and would invite the kids to come sit in on a song or two. Um, My dad would often have people over and have me play When Sunny Gets Blue on baritone sax, just because he was proud and he wanted to show, And, and I loved to do it. And he would make me improvise even with no backup. Like, I'd play the melody and then I'd improvise and then I'd play the melody again and that'd be over. Um, and I found that music was something that was fun, that people would acknowledge and recognize and give me a pat on the back. And I just kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And when I got to high school, um, boy, being a jazz band, being in symphony band, Traverse City Schools have always had some of the best music programs. And my, my band director, John Campbell, uh, was a huge inspiration to me. Um, I got to play under him last year in the NMC concert band When Pat Brumbaugh was out for a while, Um, and that was such a thrill to be back under the direction of my high school director, who was such a huge influence. Um, And you know, over time, when I was in college, my job was to be in a in a combo. I didn't have to wait tables or you know, I worked eight to twelve hours a week playing in bands, making money that way. And uh, ultimately, back in Traverse City, I played with um, Luther Graving the Soul Biscuits for ten years. Uh, I got to do a gig with The Temptations out at uh, the Grand Travers Resort. Um, that was a thrill. And now I've kind of gotten to the point where I don't play music for money anymore. I used to do it as a job. I used to like seek out opportunities to play for money. And now I play with the NMC Concert Band uh, with my daughter, who also plays Barry Sachs, and my other daughter, who plays French horn. We're all playing together. And um, I play um, with whoever invites me But I don't do it for, I don't care if I'm going to get paid. If I don't, that's fine. I just want to show up and play and just have a good time.
0: What's it like to play in the same ensemble with your kids? Oh my gosh, what a thrill. I
1: just got a little chill. Um, I never got to play with my own dad. Um, He stopped playing before I was born. And I I would try to get him into the jazz band when I played with the NMC uh, jazz band. And it just never worked out. And to, to sit next to my daughter, Gracie, and play the same instrument and play the same parts and like watch her grow as a musician Um, in in part, because of how I'm helping her and giving her tips and how she's hearing me play. And to have my other daughter who, when she started was 14 and the the other French horn players welcomed her in and made her feel part of the group. And um, she's come so far as a musician herself. Um, It's just been, it's a dream come true when they were born, I know I had thoughts about them being musicians because I want them to have that experience that I did and they've had those. And it's been such an honor and a thrill to be in that group with them. Um, It's, it's one of the highlights of my life.
0: So I'm going to take a a real tangent here, but these days there's a a brew pub on just about every corner of Traverse (laughs) City, but I, uh, I hear you enjoy the occasional beer and I do what's your favorite around here.
1: So there's a number of places uh, where I have some favorites. Lake Ann Brewing Company um, and the the brewer there is Nick Hall. They've had some great beers over the years. Um, It's their um, Session IPA and it's a great beer. And one of the things about that place that I love is in the summertime, they open up that back picnic area and have live music every night that they're open. And so sitting out there with the music and, and, and having a, having a beverage is a, is a great place. And I'll often take a book, (laughs) huge surprise. Um, silver spruce just opened, uh, about a year and a half ago on eighth street. And, um, they've got, they've got a great, what they call a, a, what I call a MIPA and everybody else now calls it that too. It's the Michigan IPA all using Michigan ingredients. And they do a, a lot of lagers and, um, their, their German Pilsner is amazing. Um, Filling Station. Um, Andy Largent's an old friend of mine. He's in the book group with me, too. He's the brewer there. Um, they've got an Italian Pilsner right now that's that's just great. Yeah, there's a number of places in town. Earth and Ales makes great beer. Um, they've got their their Juniper IPA that's um, that's just great. Um, and, and they've always got a constantly rotating menu, too, and they're doing a lot of really creative stuff. So... I'm fortunate that I've been able to become friends with a lot of these people. And um, I really I really do support uh, what they're doing. They're doing a lot of local craft things, using local ingredients. They're really supporting um, other local businesses and providing opportunities. Like for Kyle, when he started the board game group, Earth and Ale's welcomed him in and said, here's a space for you. And I, that's just been great that, that those kinds of places will support each other and cross-promote other opportunities in town.
0: Okay, your third game is brand new recently having a successful kickstarter and it's awaiting fulfillment Mm -hmm. it was designed by benjamin faramond and uh i believe you had an early role in this game's development or play testing or something like that why do you want to bring faza
1: okay so faza is a tough tough game the reason i would include faza in like a stuck in snowmageddon kind of theme is because it is so hard it's not one that is winnable without great difficulty. Um, I've played it a number of times as a play tester with different groups, um, from local groups to my, my gaming group downstate. And it is a challenge. The, the game is set up so much in favor of the invading alien force that is trying to faza form the earth to turn it into a place that is, um, someplace that they can live um, that you really have to have not only good strategy but good luck and that good luck is hard to come by because when the FASA act uh, there's a there's a deck of cards that that indicate what the FASA will do everything's bad <laughs> everything is a challenge everything is um, something that's going to confront the team and make it worse. And it makes sense. If you are a ragtag bunch of human beings trying to prevent the overthrow of your world from invading alien force that is technologically way more advanced than you, it's going to be an uphill climb. And so the challenge of the game makes sense with the theme of the game. It's not easy to win. Um, You're not going to win every time. You may lose early. Um, and, but that's what I like about it because it is so hard you have to really understand what's happening you really have to work together as a team it's another cooperative game either everybody wins or everybody loses in the same sense that Pathfinder is that um, it's, it's because of that challenge that I think that it would be worthwhile for a stuck in Snowmageddon idea because you're, you're going to lose you're going to lose and then you try again and you might lose again but then you try again But it's also a very fun game. It's very interactive. Um, Players work together on each turn. There's not a you go and then I go and then our third player goes. You work together and you decide what order things are gonna happen in and you take your turns collaboratively. So it's a asynchronous gameplay. And you really have to work together. If, If you're just on your phone and distracted or what, and not participating, you're gonna lose. (laughs) Um, so some of the, some of the feedback we gave to the, to the designer were things about that difficulty level. And one of the things that he did in response and whether it was our input or someone else's was he, he built in three different levels of difficulty. So different, um, the, the motherships that have come to spread the, (laughs) the alien force across the, the, the field of play, um, they do different things based on the level that you've selected to play if you i i would always recommend starting on the easiest level realize how hard it is cuz you're going to lose on the easy level and you're going to play again and again and you're going to beat it and then move up um what i don't want to have happen is have people play the game expecting it to just be hey this is a alien invasion game uh we'll see how to beat it and then cuz you're not <laughs> you it's going to it's something that is really good for people who have the I guess the current word is grit to stick with it and keep going and keep going until you can, can beat the game um, it's an awful lot of fun the, the theme as I said is alien invasion but it also looks like a 50's pulp kind of comic look so um, it's got this great design to it um, the, the board is a, uh, a randomized set of tiles if a tile gets Faza formed you flip it over and so whatever resource might have been there is no longer available. Uh, it might be poisonous. So if you, if you end up there and you, um, you're you there at the end of your turn, it hits your health. Your health is based on the, I think it's six cards that you put out in front of you. And if you each card has a thing that it can do, whether it's attack or move or uh, heal uh, or transport. And then when you get injured, you flip over the first of those cards. You don't get to pick. You flip over the first one, which limits, I think, your movement. If you flip over all cards, you die and your team loses. Now you can heal by going back to a an outpost, but that takes time and that takes your turn. Then you don't get to do anything else. So you really have to manage damage. You have to manage um, movement. Um, somebody Somebody's job might be to essentially heal the landscape to to re- uh, terraform it. And so there's a lot of things that might happen, consequences that you have to respond to and you have to work together to make sure that you all can respond to those uh, consequences together.
0: Is every game solvable or I
1: don't know. <laughs> I think I think the latter is probably uh, true that there's just some times when you're just not gonna make it. Uh, when you attack a um, mothership, you draw a mothership card to see what happens and it might be um, place a faza on any tile where there isn't one so you might end up with on your first attack move seeding the entire play field with more bad guys that's a problem <laughs> um, there, are, there are consequences like um, you're abducted and uh, you don't get to participate in the next round which means your team is reduced by one um, so all of that is by luck of the draw. Um, now the last time I talked with with Ben um, about the about some of these mechanics, at least um, he had mentioned putting in a couple boons into that deck, but they're going to be rare and they might never come up. Boy, the feeling when you win is amazing. Um, I actually demoed this game at Grand Con two summers ago, and I had a group of high school kids come in and play, and I set it up. And we explained what was happening. And they understood that need for synchronous action, um, as a team and things rolled our way and it got super close. We were within inches of defeat. And on, on the last turn where we, we were about to lose, we saw the consequence that was coming up next. We knew we were going to lose. And on that last opportunity, um, the team got together and, and I wasn't playing at all. I was just teaching it. And they made it happen. And the cheer that went up from the table was heartwarming, if nothing else. These three nerds from Grand Rapids, (laughs) you know, they were just so excited and so thrilled to have beaten it because they felt the challenge the whole way through. They, you feel how hard this is from the very beginning. Um, And when they won, boy, what a thrill. It was great. What role do you think games play in society? Do games matter? Oh, for sure. Uh, I do a podcast with Traverse City Area Public Schools and, um, my, my handle on Twitter and within this podcast network is the technologist because I'm, I'm deeply embedded in educational technology. Um, and I, I like to teach about it. So I give them the gist, right? The technologist. Um, and one of the things I do is every, every podcast I sign off with the line, play a game today. It's good for you. And we talk about gaming in my podcast too. I've used, um, a customized version of monopoly with my sociology students where the first thing they do is we randomize social class and then I have a whole nother set of consequences as chance and community chest cards that correlate with their social class and um, there's different benefits that that students get based on uh, their class and certain you know um, drawbacks from being there too Um, And so I use gaming in the classroom as a way to teach critical thinking um, as a way to teach um, with uh, simulations of situations that they could never be in on their own. Um, They get to, they get to experience different ways of, of, of being a citizen in the United States through a simulation, through a game where they might not win, but they might, it's not about winning or losing. It's about that experience. Um, I also think that gaming is an opportunity for us to promote things like critical reading skills. When I buy a game, I have to sit down and look at the rules and I have to d- make sure I understand what all those things mean. When, I, when I'm working with kids and I'm, I'm teaching them a game, they have to have that same experience of understanding text. Even video games provide ample opportunities for reading with, uh, especially those role-playing games that we play online. Games allow kids to learn how to work together, how to manage emotional responses, how to, um, win graciously. You know, my, my daughter's involved in the first robotics, uh, competition. And one of their main, um, tenets is gracious professionalism, that they are to act always in a way that is professional, but also, um, kind and gentle and with with grace towards their colleagues and their opponents first robotics as a as a first it's a sport it's a game it's a competition but they always emphasize that idea of of being respectful um, to everyone and and being professional but also being gracious about it uh, I think that's a, a lesson that can be learned through gaming as well that it's not just let me see if i can win it's Let me see if I can win and be cool about it. Let me see if I can understand the game and let me, if someone makes a mistake, how do I um, correct that in a way that isn't demeaning, that isn't disrespectful, that isn't in some way an attack on the person. And I I think we've all probably seen that and nobody likes it. (laughs) So using this as a way to advance social grace is an important lesson for everybody in, in our society.
0: What's the main ingredient for your favorite experience while gaming? Is it aesthetics or strategy? Burying mm. your opponent? Uh, <laughs> Did you that, say burying yeah. your opponent? No,
1: it's never that. Um, <laughs> oh, gosh. To, I, well, let's see. I, my first, my first uh, instinct is I like games that look good. I like pretty games. Uh, one of my favorite games is called Little Flower Shop. Um, it's this little cute Uh, you're running a flower shop and all of the flowers that are on the cards that you might use to put in your window are realistically drawn. Um, It is a, it's a drafting game. Uh, Kyle and I love to play it. And my favorite times of playing have been with Kyle on that game uh, because we just sort of let it be exactly what it is. We have a good time. Uh, I tend to win <laughs> and he's, and he's cool with that. You know, I mean, that's part of the other thing too, is that when Kyle and I play, there's never a rivalry or an animosity or darn it you won or, um, and so I, I like games that allow me to feel like uh, even if I lose, I'm all right. When I play terraforming Mars or what's the other one? Scythe. Whenever I play terraforming Mars or Scythe and no offense intended, I always feel like there's somebody in that group that I'm playing with that that has that experience of owning your opponent, and I don't like that. And that's part of what why I don't play those games very often is because I don't want to be in that kind of a emotional space. Um, I don't like it, <laughs> um, but I, I I like games that are, um, as I said, that are pretty. So games like Kanagawa, where your goal is to create a Japanese art print, I love that idea even if you lose so what you may you created a painting you know that's who cares if you win or lose i mean it's great to win fine sure but it's just it's fun being in that artistic space same seems true of like sagrada where you're creating the um uh what do you call stained it glass. stained glass window mm-hmm. or what i call the the bird and flower game uh saikatsu okay yep. it's it's just pretty mm-hmm. it's fun it's fun because it looks great um and I enjoy winning too, sure, but it's just a fun experience with something that looks beautiful. That might be a weird take on board gaming, but whatever.
0: Uh, your last game is uh, particularly appropriate now as everyone is talking about social distancing. <laughs> it's uh, commonly seen as a good solitaire game. It was originally published in 2009, but had a second edition published by Victory Point Games in 2017. It was designed by Chris Taylor, and it's Nemo's War. What do you like about this? I first played Nemo's War at, where did I play it the first time? I tried to set it
1: up at home, just didn't, I wasn't getting it. So I I watched a a replay and then I played it for the first time, I think, at um, maybe Silver Spruce where I set it up on a a big table in the afternoon. And it is a single player game where you play Nemo, the captain of the um, Nautilus, and it's this giant map and it, it's it's kind of hard to explain what the goal of the game is because there are so many different ways to play it. There's a number of different roles you can take. You can take the, the approach of war. You can be a diplomat. You can be an explorer. And based on which role you take as the captain, at the end of the game, you get points based on... if you're, For example, if you take war, then you get bonus points based on how many ships you sink, how many military ships you sink. If you are the explorer, on the other hand... Um, you might take a negative point for sinking ships. Um, if you're a diplomat, you're definitely gonna take a, a hit if you sink ships and especially if they're non, uh, non-military ships because there's merchant ships as well. I always play with the rules next to me because it's such a big game with so many rules that you just wanna make sure that you're doing the right thing. But once you get it going, once you get it uh, moving, you're, you're interacting with Nemo's world and because 20,000 leagues under the sea, which is what the game is based on is in the public domain. They're able to have on each adventure card that you flip up. There's text from that novel and, um, true to my experience with, with reading, um, I was about to play this game. I knew it was coming up, but I had a trip to Chicago. And so I got the audio book and I listened to 20,000 leagues before I played the game for the first time. And oh my gosh, what a great opportunity that was. I'd always wanted to read 20,000 leagues. I never took the opportunity. I listened to it. I started it when I left my house and it finished when I pulled in my friend's driveway. How perfect is that? And then the next weekend I played Nemo's War. It is a fully engaging game for a single player. And because of the multiple roles that you can play it through, totally replayable. So if you're stuck in Snowmageddon for a few days, you could play it every day and have a different goal every time. And it's a long game if you survive. There's ways that you can lose, obviously. Um, And then because it's single player, it's not just a matter of beating the game. Um, there's actually a scale that'll determine, based on how many points you acquire, how well did you do. And you, if you finish the game and you you get some of the the lower point levels, it kind of says something like, eh, I mean, you you finished. <laughs> but there are there are goals so that if you if you achieve higher and higher point ranking, you finished, you know, legendary or epic or one of those kinds of words that. Um, it becomes a matter of not only just finishing the game and not dying, but maximizing those bonus points based on the role that you've selected. And so you always have to be conscious of what is it that I'm ultimately trying to to do. And it it may not be sinking ships. It may not be um, you know finding and defeating monsters. It may be creating peace with these other uh, communities that pop up around the world. So uh, it's a great adventure game. It's, again, one that looks great on the table. Um, uh, there's a ton of reading. There's a ton of, of um, critical thinking and choice-making and those kinds of things. And, uh, and because it's based on uh, a classic science fiction piece, all of that together, um, I just love it. it. I've played it half a dozen times, each taking a different role. And it plays completely differently based on the role that you select, and I got the expansion, so I think I have like three new roles now that I can try
0: so uh, schools are closed for a little while because of the coronavirus issues um, what what's next for you? what's next for you in gaming? what do you what's happening now?
1: Well I think Nemo's war is gonna get a play for one thing during this time you know I'm trying to encourage my kids to remain active and learning. Um, they are, they they both know that they're expected to read during this, during this time. Um, we just got a jigsaw puzzle that, that I kickstarted, uh, that's a human body, uh, jigsaw. And it's, um, it's created by a, uh, a woman who is a, um, textbook designer and illustrator. And I've actually had my daughter in, in conversation with her about possibilities for careers in in the arts and that kind of a way. So, you know these these are times when I want my kids to get involved in in reading and in learning opportunities. And I always promote games as as a way to do that. When we when we sit down and, and play a board game together, you know my goal is not to beat my kids, <laughs> but I'll beat them if if it turns out that way, and I won't feel bad about it. Uh, but I want them to to be able to understand and think and have that opportunity for just, just ex- exercising that thinking. Like we mentioned earlier, games allow people to engage in strategic thinking in small doses in a way that, that keeps their, their capacity for thinking engaged and practiced. And we know from, from research that if you want to avoid Alzheimer's as an, a, as an older adult, one of the ways to do that is through puzzle games and through strategic thinking opportunities and, and, you know, playing games is healthy. <laughs> playing games is good for you. That's why in my podcast, play a game today, it's good for you. Um, and there was one one opportunity where we were talking about how gaming supports literacy. And my tagline
0: that day was play a game today. It's good for literacy because it is. Well, I'm glad that this is a healthy activity. I, it's good to know that. So my last formal question for you is uh, the snowmobile on its way to wherever you are had to cross a river. And on its way, it hit the far bank, and three of the games that you chose bounced out and were washed away down the river. Oh, no. So as you unpack, which one of the four games that you picked do you hope is still there?
1: Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. Wow. That is maybe the best question I've ever heard. Oh, boy. I think I'm going to have to keep um, Pathfinder. The long-term playability of it, the replayability of it, um, the opportunity—I mean, all those things—I want creative thinking, reading, um, interactivity, team teamwork, um, cooperative gameplay, um, fun, beautiful. The 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 artwork on the game is great. Um, there's humor. Uh, there's opportunities for you to to play and then not play for a month and then come back to it and and the development of character that's available you get to level up as it were Um, and the fact that there's so much game to play Uh, in our three three year campaign I think we went through was it maybe just the first box of six adventures and then we started another one and we did that one too it's I mean I don't think there's a question it's got to be Pathfinder
0: okay well i hope uh hope you never have to make that decision but Please no. uh, <laughs> so uh david next time Noller, thank you so much for being here in snowmageddon with us what
1: a pleasure it's been it's been fun to reminisce it's been fun to talk about things that are uh inspired by the games but you know they they it's taken me down some memory paths that i've really enjoyed
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Gamer Stuck in Snowmageddon. Thanks again to David for being a good sport. Links to the games and other things we discussed can be found on the podcast website, gameinsnow.com. This podcast was recorded at the studios of Traverse Area Community Media in Traverse City, which are available to everyone. Find out more at tacm.tv. This nice music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Website hosting is sponsored by Archipelago Creative LLC, makers of Mackinac Island Treasure Hunt card and board games at mackinactreasure.com. Look for more episodes of this podcast at anchor.fm slash gameinsnow. And if you have comments about this show or want to suggest or be a guest, please email me at gameinsnow at gmail.com. I'm Jim Muratsky. Thanks a lot for listening.